Many of us know all too well the tributes that are given to people who matter so much too late, both professionally and personally. Professionally, of course, Mike has no peer, and as a friend, he has none either. He is so important to so many of us that we unconsciously imitate the quirky cadences of his speech. We sit in on his acting classes because there's more wisdom than you can find in the I Ching and more wit, well, at least half as much as Nichols and May. Um, he is generous to a fault and he pays attention. As the, the years and the decades peel away, he seems to draw upon um, a deepening well of kindness and generosity of spirit and demeanor. And that's always characterized our friendship. As for the work, the work is always at least good, you know, often brilliant. But more than that, I think, no cynicism, no self-righteousness, no anger from a person who had a, suffered traumatic childhood experiences, swam through the waters of Hollywood and Broadway. I admire that. Everybody is just a person. But Mike, you are larger than life for me. I treasure you as an entertaining witty and intelligent human being. You, when we first worked together, I said to you at one point, well, I see actors are babies. And you said, yes, they are. They're crazy babies. I, I only know that uh, if that's true, no one knows better than you, Mike, how to bring us up to give performances of consummate sanity and significance. Thank you. This is the November 26th, 2014 edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. For the second part of our tribute to the late Mike Nichols, we're thrilled to present another event from our archives. And this is Eugene Hernandez. In November of 2004, the director took the stage here at the Walter Reed Theater at Lincoln Center for an event entitled Getting Closer to Mike Nichols. The evening included a conversation with the Film Society's Wendy Keyes, as well as clips from his career. Let's listen. fun to see those, those pieces, even after 1999. It just seems like yesterday. Great fun. But I wanted to start off by asking you, um, you began in stand-up comedy, went to directing film and theater, as did Woody Allen, Elaine May, Albert Brooks, and some others. Was there anything in that experience that, uh, that helped you when you went to direct? Yeah. I, I think, first of all, I think it's, all the best people in the theater started as comics, if you think about it. Maggie Smith, Patrick Marber, who wrote yes. Closer. Yeah. Wherever you look, there are reformed comedians. <laughs> and I think there's a reason. One is that I'm finding, I'm thinking about this sometimes when we, uh, I'm rehearsing a, a musical of Spam, of uh, uh, the Holy Grail. And 
it's so great to work on something where if it's okay, you laugh, and if you don't laugh, it's not okay. It's so simple. You don't have to <laughs> worry about motivations or, as CAA calls it now, arcs, or all the things that, that you have to worry about in, in uh, drama. It's funny or it's not. It's, it's, I like that. But I think also that, that uh, Compass, Second City, where Elaine and I learned whatever we learned, um, taught you the rules of whatever this is, drama, um, in a particularly wonderful way. Because when you're standing or sitting in front of an audience and you've got to come through with something and you don't have a script, because we improvised, um, you learn very quickly. You learn that if you say black, I have to say white. That you have to create a scene and you learn what makes a scene. A seduction is a scene, fighting is a scene. Elaine used to say of improvisation, when in doubt, seduce. <laughs> Be because it's, uh, it's something happening. This whole thing of things being dialogue, you know, oh yeah, it's good, but it's a lot of talk. <laughs> when you think about the great movies, let's say, because everybody says movies are a visual medium, and they are, but when you think about, for instance, All About Eve, which is all of our, one of our favorite movies, all they do is talk. But you never, a joke is not dialogue. A fight is not dialogue. A seduction is not dialogue. They're events. There's something happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that our, the thing that we found ourselves doing, because we never planned to do it, we just sort of fell into it to make a big 35 bucks a week. And then Elaine and I remember the halcyon day when we were raised, because we were a tremendous success, we were raised to $68 a week. <laughs> Um, that, that that taught us sort of in our bones how you make a scene. Interesting, yeah. And um, then you, you were well established in, on Broadway and you made the leap to film. Was there anything that jettisoned you into the film medium particularly? I mean, you had a wonderful project with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but what made you take that leap? I was in love with movies since I was a little kid. I mean, since I was in school in New York, and my, my parents, who, because we came over from Europe, you know, during the, during the Nazis, my parents hadn't had a chance to do normal things like fight, um, because the whole thing was to get out. Mm -hmm. But when we got over here, they fought all the time. And I would say to myself, this is dumb, you know. I don't want, to, I don't want this, I'm going to the movies. You said they and then the irony friends. is that I made movies in which couples fight all the time. <laughs> but I, the movies saved me in some strange way. And like with everything, that we all find, I think, that it's the things that you're not even aware of wanting to study, because there's so much, there's such a passion with you, you don't even know they're a passion with you, you just have to keep doing them. 
It's like the things you read when you're a kid that you couldn't possibly read now. I remember reading all of Eugene O'Neill. I must have been insane. <laughs> but and it, it, I loved it. I couldn't stop. So I, would I was able to continue being lazy and feeling lazy and not doing my schoolwork, but I couldn't stop reading O'Neill. O'Neill, it's lousy dialogue and everything, but there was something great and it compelled me. And I, I think that that's what happened with movies. And the, one of the wonderful things about movies is you never know who's going to be able to make one. Mm -hmm. Because we all, they're all part of all of us. And when somebody says, I, I'd like to make a movie, especially now when you can just, you know, get a video camera and make a movie. Somebody like Soderbergh did. Um, you don't know what's happening inside people and in their unconsciousness. And since movies are made largely by un the unconscious and address largely the unconscious, this is my big theory about them, uh, you don't know who's going to be able to do it, which is nice. Mm -hmm. You you once cited the pleasures that you derive from the films of Weiler and Wilder and Sturgis and Houston and Truffaut and Fellini and did any of those filmmakers make a mark on your own films? I think all of them did. How funny because I was thinking I don't know why tonight except that I knew we were going to be here. I was thinking about Willie Wilder who was a friend and who I cared about a lot, and Billy Wilder, they were unbelievably generous and welcoming sort of when I got to Hollywood, the new kid, you know, and they took me to lunch and they had me for dinner and they gave me tips and stuff. Um, but what I was thinking about Willie Wilder was, here's the little foxes. And there are some lines from it that are famous. Let's say the most famous line from it is, Are you afraid, Mama? Which I think is the last line. Um, but I'll guarantee you, if you saw the movie and or liked the movie, that you haven't forgotten the moment when Herbert Marshall is having a heart attack and gets out of his wheelchair, he says, get my medicine, and she sits absolutely mm -hmm. still, Betty Davis, and she doesn't do anything. And he realizes that she wants to let him die, and he gets up and he totters across, and his hand grabs the chair right next to her face. It's one of the great close-ups. And you never forget that painted face with this big hair, and this little mm -hmm. prissy mouth, and this desperate hand coming and clutching her chair right next to her head. The, the, a great filmmaker makes moments that are intense in a way that, you're, that certain key memories are in your own life. Mm -hmm. And then the, you see him crawling up the stairs behind exactly, her. Exactly, exactly. You stay there and you see him going up this exactly. That, that the great filmmakers, when they're hot, are making sort of ur memories. It's like they were your memory before you ever saw it, and they become part of your memory. And if you make movies, that there's this entire 
world of, of such things that's, that's sitting in your head. It's like I always wonder, I don't know how a composer does it, because how do you know you're not writing something somebody already wrote? I mean, how do you know it's a new melody? I can't understand that. But I know when I'm stealing and when I'm making it up. <laughs> and the great thing, if you're making movies, a great thing about stealing stuff is you can't. Nobody ever recognizes it. Whatever you do to try to get it exactly like they did it, it changes. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of either nobody's or yours. Because there, there are certain shots, there's one shot, one Lenny Riefenstahl shot that I've tried to steal three or four different times in different movies. But I didn't have enough extras to do it. <laughs> so Good every shot. time, it's the shot where she has the camera behind the crowd and Hitler is in the convertible Mercedes and he's like this but you only see him from the waist up and you don't see the car and he seems to be floating for quite a long time because she had the camera on a track which nobody yet had mm -hmm. done and of course she had hundreds of thousands of Germans <laughs> and <laughs> I've done it and done it and done it, but I never had enough people. So it always becomes something else. Mm -hmm. Going back to the idea of those, those extremely riveting memories that are created, Fellini would make the point that you could only experience that if you watch it on film and not on home video with a dog, you know, sort of in between you and your television set. You needed to be in a dark room with a group of people, it was a communal thing on a large screen, and that's how, that's one of the reasons these, these images were able to enter your consciousness or subconsciousness and your memories forever. Do you, do you feel that it's, that he was exaggerating that, or do you feel that, because the idea of video was a complete anathema to him for that reason? I think that certain things during the span of your own life necessities to have a certain experience but that for the next generation it's different it's not like that which is one of the nice things that yes I feel pretty much like he did that if you're sitting in the it's why I can't stand when people you know get screenings two at a time you know mm -hmm. critics and so forth what is that you know you, you have to be in the group in the dark I feel because I'm, you know, it's part of my generation. Um, but my kids, obviously, I mean, my kids understand are in their 60s now. But, <laughs> but, not. but, but my kids can be on the phone and watching a movie and on their computer and, and follow a plot better than I can now. They're always explaining to me, no, no, he raped the other one. <laughs> you know, and I said, how would, you, how would you possibly know that? Like, for instance, what's this movie, this terrifying movie in which the woman is raped? It takes about 13 minutes in one shot. Oh, the French film the French by film. Gaspar Noé. Yeah. Um, I don't know that. I, oh, irreversible. irreversible, thank you. What a movie. What a guy. I don't even know if I like it, but... It, you never forget it, it's appalling. But in the very beginning, when they 
are killing this guy in some bathhouse. My son said, that isn't the guy that does the rape later, because the whole movie is backwards, for those of you who haven't seen it. And I said, what do you mean? How do you know? And he said, well, you see it. I said, what do you see? He said, well, the guy that rapes her later sees them and leaves, and the guy they kill is someone else. Well, it's absolutely invisible to me. I've seen it over and over, and I can't see it. So it's not that multitasking precludes grasping. They're much better at grasping things than I am. It's different for different yeah. generations. What, what actually is the hook that pulls you into a project? It must vary wildly from project to project because your range is so huge. Yeah, I don't really know what it is, except that when it interests, something interests me, I sort of spend some time with it, as we all do, and then I either suddenly see a piece of it, a small, very, very small piece of it, and then I say, oh, I, I get it. This is what's going to happen with this. It'll be all right. I can do this. Or I don't. It was a period of seven years when I would start to work on something, and then I never got, nothing would ever come. I wouldn't see anything. I didn't make a movie for seven years, mm -hmm. which turned out to be great. But um, it, that's, I don't understand more of it than that. The stories are so mysterious. Even now, that things, you know, that the, the fundamentalists on both sides of the line are, I won't, I promise I won't go on long about this, but the, one of the first things that have been destroyed, I think, is metaphor. For instance, the Bible, which is our greatest metaphor, to take it literally is a horrendous thing to do because it's the greatest and most useful metaphors we have. Mm -hmm. But along, in doing that, very strange things are happening to stories stories which are so mysterious already are being, are being chased into corners. All this reality stuff, so-called, on television. It, it's not really, of course, reality, as everybody knows. It's a bad imitation of reality by people who aren't as good as actors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that the reason it's happening so much is that, that just as in some ways art is the enemy of the Bushies, of fundamentalists, of born-again people, um, since there's only Jesus and all the things that he said, as we know in English, because <laughs> if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us. <laughs> that once you're into that, then metaphor is left behind and we don't have access to the mysteries of it. And, and shows about Donald Trump firing people <laughs> are more comfortable. Because I think a lot of this stuff, I think the point of it is it's disturbing. Mm -hmm. And Don, Donald Trump not quite a person. 
f firing people who also are not quite people <laughs> because they've been sort of, forgive the expression, trumped up for the show <laughs> is, is in some strange way the art for the fundamentalists. And I think those of us who still are hung up on metaphor and stories end up doing stranger and stranger things. And in the movies, of course, the minute you say you'd like to do anything, at the studio there are 40 people to say, well, do people want this? Mm -hmm. And that's when the trouble begins. Right. <laughs> Speaking of metaphor, you, apparently you use it when you work with your actors. Instead of asking an actor to be sad or forlorn, you'll say, uh, pretend that you are at, in high school and nobody's asking you to dance. I mean, you create the little mini-story to evoke the, the expression, the, the emotion that you want. Is this a technique you use often? I don't think I say pretend this or that. It's more a question. I think there really is only one question. What is this really like? When you look at the material, the moment, the scene, the whole thing. What is this really like? Not what have we all agreed on about these things, but what is it really like? Do anybody remember a movie called The Lady Vanishes, oh, the Hitchcock movie? Yes. Well, the joy of The Lady Vanishes was, as it went along, you sort of would think, I get it. He's questioning every single cliche so that He's, he's obviously said to himself, and therefore to us, what if I don't do the accepted things? A guy is hit very hard over the head, and he goes unconscious, but what if he doesn't fall down? What if he just sort of stays leaning in the corner of the train? What if a girl watches her guy and another guy in a vicious fight, and instead of staying in a close-up making faces, what if she gets a shoe or something and starts beating the hell out of the bad guy? That he started questioning these cliches. I think that's what we have to do with our stories, that you say, well, this is what happens in plays and movies. I mean, if somebody says a headache in a movie, you know they're going to die. A headache, a headache is a brain tumor. <laughs> If a soldier gets too happy, yes, it's over. You always think, "Oh no, <laughs> I like him. Oh. <laughs> Why does he have to die?" <laughs> you know, the, the cliches go further and further back in our own awareness of how this is done, and it's fun to question how it really happens. Your actors are ecstatic singing your praises. You, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the rapport that you established with them? Well, I love actors because they're brave, because it's, it's a scary thing to do. To, a, it's a scary thing to do, to have everybody looking at you. It's a scary thing to risk your soul in being so known by a lot of people. That's a tough one to survive, mm -hmm. as we know, although the best do and can. Um, and I, I identify with them, I like them. And it's, it's, it's nice how many 
Acting is much easier, I think, that when you think of it as a series of practical solutions. I have a thing that I bore my few students with uh, called MGM Telephone, which is, which is based on when I worked with Dan Durier. Uh, he replaced, what's his name, Walter Matthau in uh, The Odd Couple, the play. Mm -hmm. And he was great, Dan Durier, and we all rehearsed together because he was an august replacement. And we would hang out in between rehearsals, and, and he always talked about the old days at MGM when he was a contract player. And I said, what did they teach you? Because they had classes. And he said, well, we had lessons in uh, speech, movement, and telephone. <laughs> <laughs> and I said... What do they teach you in telephone? <laughs> and he said, they taught us. If you're doing a scene when you answer the telephone and you're going to get bad news, answer happy. And if you're going to get good news, answer sad. <laughs> and he told me that, whatever it was, like 30, 35, 40 years ago? And you think... A, I'm kidding, but it's, I really believe that's really all you need to know to act. <laughs> <laughs> that when you watch a really great actor, it's almost the main thing about a great actor or a good actor. He doesn't get there till he gets there. I'll give you an unkind example because of something missed. I like Nicole Kidman a lot, and she's a very good actress. But she was not well-directed in, what should we call it, The Hours. Because if you're going to play a suicide, you can't be depressed for the whole movie. That's the whole point. That you have to be the life of the party, and then commit suicide. That's a story. That's a character. That's a performance. And that's, as it happens, Virginia Woolf. She was the life of the party. Everybody loved her. She was magical. And then she killed herself. Mm -hmm. Nicole Kidman is a, is a wonderful actress. And if you said to her, the whole point is that you don't know you're going to kill yourself, it would have been great. It would have been fine. But that's the only way to tell a story, not to know what's going to happen, not to play it before you get there. And I... I think I'm useful to actors for that reason, that it's really just a series of practicalities. I'll, I'll, it's boring, but I'll tell you one other example of it that I found useful. Uh, there's a line in Shakespeare, take this from this if this be otherwise. What does it mean? It's gibberish. Take this from this if this be otherwise. What it means is, take this from this, if this be otherwise. Cut my damn head off if I'm lying. Mm. You don't have to be able to act when you do that line. You have to know what it means, and you have to go like this. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Any more would be too much. And my theory is that there is a corresponding gesture or thought for everything an actor does or says. Mm -hmm. You just have to find it. And the finding it 
the research, the thinking about it, the rehearsing, the talking to each other, the examining your life and other people's lives. Again, when you see a great actor, it's the things that happen to them that express the heart of what's going on. And it's never much more than this. If you think of your favorite acting moments, they're always very, very tiny things. They're not great sweeping speeches or sobbing scenes or anything. Mm -hmm. It's that it's Jeanne Moreau in, in Jules and Jim when her skirt, she's cleaning up the fire where they've sort of made a little fire in, in the empty house. And her skirt catches on fire and she goes, eh. That's all. Just a tiny little sound, and just starts to put it out. But it's so, it's such a shock of how alive it is and how real it is. It's the small things. Matthew Broderick said that you create a special atmosphere on a set, that it's a combination of electricity and safety. How do you manage to balance those two elements? Well, you know, 90% of it is having very good people to begin with. I mean, if you have Matthew Broderick, he's funny, he's cute, he's smart. He absolutely knows what the author meant. I mean, you could see it, you could see it in mm -hmm. Biloxi Blues. He knows exactly what Neil Simon imagined. And once you have people like that, the thing I think that I learned, I could never do it as much as she does, but the, th the most remarkable thing about Streep and the most useful thing to observe, having made, I think, five movies with her, maybe, or six, six, is that every day she comes on the set and you can see her thinking, oh boy, I get to do this again. She's exactly like your kid in the first really good part in a high school play. She loves it. And to never forget that it's playing, you are actually playing and having fun and pretending. To remember that and to experience it is half the battle. Not to go on forever, but I also think that whole generations are affected by such strange things. Actresses used to be very difficult. And I believe the reason they were difficult is that there were moments like, iconic moments like Judy Garland and Stars Boy, they're putting her freckles on, and her husband is whatever he was at that point, about to commit suicide. And she says, would you just leave me alone for a minute? And all the girls thought, that's an, that's an actress, that's, boy, that's really passion and sensitivity. And, and they all acted like that. It was a real pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> that these things are catching fashions. Yeah. Well, Meryl Streep, in fact, calls your set a playground of invention, which is, nice. shows how playful she feels it is. And, and you once said that uh, the, the best actors are the easiest and the most fun, so. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So a lot of it is in the casting and your, obviously of the rapport that you establish too. Well, and also I've realized fairly late 
that no one can break the circle, that just one... A movie set is a very interesting place because you can become a pariah by going... Just that little tisk and looking at your watch and you're done, you're finished. It's, it's a very strange place with thousands and thousands of unspoken rules. And anybody who breaks the rules is sort of ostracized in, in, a, in a way that's very hard to put your finger on. But someone absolutely pure, like for instance, Sandy Dennis. Sandy Dennis who, she wasn't really like the, the part of the crew that I call the good morning impaired. That <laughs> they're the guys who are mysteriously playing poker when you get there at seven in the morning. <laughs> and what they actually are is that the carpenters who've built your set and they feel that they have no connection with you or you with them. And I realized quite late that they have to be included too that you can't have good morning impaired on the set. Mm -hmm. and, and when you're pure like Sandy Dennis, she didn't say hello to anybody. She didn't befriend anybody. She came from her trailer, which happened to be on the stage, and did her scene and went back to the trailer, belching very loudly. It was the thing of hers. <laughs> And she was utterly adored by everyone in the movie because she was just concentrating on her job. She did her job. She was nice to everyone. Mm -hmm. She didn't woo anyone. People recognize um, purpose. Once, uh, I think it was Art Garfunkel said that you said that actors are crazy babies. I mean, obviously, this is a sweeping statement. But he also went on to say that you, in, in a way, bring them up to, to deliver performances of great significance and, and beauty, really. So, so in some cases, I guess he felt, or you feel, that some of these actors do need enormous amount of encouragement. Think about Brando as I have been, as we all have been. Here he was. He was the greatest actor, certainly, of our time, which is, in my case, you know, how long have I been looking at actors? 50 years, 60 years? Um, and he was such a strange man because he was like a child, but he was also a genius, and he lived absolutely, entirely in the moment, always. Mm -hmm. And he did strange things. You know, remember reading about how he was broke, bankrupt when he died? Mm -hmm. Well, that was a hoax that he and his lawyer cooked up on his deathbed to scare his 30 or 40 children. <laughs> <laughs> And he deliberately <laughs> wanted to scare them and them to think that they had nothing, that they were going to get no money from him. Who does that? <laughs> crazy baby. And his, a crazy baby. <laughs> but also a sort of saintly crazy baby and a genius and a 
an artist from whom there's lots to learn, that it's such a weird thing to do. I mean, the main thing you think on a movie set every day is what is a weird way to make a living. And it is so strange, which is one of the things that keeps it endlessly interesting because it's bizarre. But the greatest, I don't know about crazy, but they've managed to stay babies in some inner way. And how do you work with them? Do you improvise much or do you do a lot of takes? How, what is your I don't do a lot of takes. I've, it doesn't work for me. It seems to me, it's why I can't, I can't do a movie of a play I've done. Because I have to be meeting it for the first time. I have to be scared, confused, mystified, and begin to fight my way out of the corner. In fact, the reason I can't stop making movies is that every day I think, well, now I'm really screwed. This scene I cannot do. Nobody can do this scene, and yet we can't cut it because it's crucial in the plot. Well, it's over. It's hopeless. Mm -hmm. Unless, maybe, if we put this over here and put her over there, and when you come in, you see this, and slowly you fight your way out of the corner and then you heave a sigh of relief and you say, oh, one more time, saved, saved again. And you become addicted to that. The only problem is it doesn't work in life. Yes. <laughs> so you have to keep on making movies. <laughs> That's your answer. <laughs> what about the rest of us? <laughs> Well, we go on seeing movies. Yes, that's true. That's the rest of us. Um, you have, uh, you've always collaborated with wonderful screenwriters and cinematographers and technicians, and some of them have actually become semi-permanent fixtures in your career, Sam Osteen, Anne Roth, Randy Balsmeyer, and others. I mean, do, does, does, the, does that make you more comfortable, and are they able to follow those swings of your themes and your styles? Yes. Well, I think that... Well, you know what David Mamet said. David Mamet said, movies are a collaborative medium. Bend over. <laughs> <laughs> and God knows they are a collaborative medium. And the bend-over part is, <laughs> has more to do with the studio than with the people making the movie. Um, but the people, you get to, what? Knowing each other in a way that is shorthand. I mean, Anne Roth, who is certainly the greatest costume designer I've ever known or seen the work of or been around. She tells the most bizarre stories about the characters. She apparently has misunderstood them completely. <laughs> I mean, you give her, I'm exaggerating now, but let's say you give her Sidney Poitier and he's a sharecropper. And she'll say, well, clearly he went to Wellesley. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> he was in a kind of clique where they did so-and-so, and I think, what? <laughs> you know, what does this have to do with anything? 
<laughs> but then he comes in and he's wearing not a costume, but he's wearing clothes. Just the right clothes. Just clothes. And he's a person that I recognize and he is a sharecropper or whatever he's playing. It, it, it's not at all what people say. It's what they do. Movies are what people do, where the light is, how quietly they get the mics in place, um, how well they know that this actor is only going to do this long take like this once, that nobody could do it more than once, and they better be very quiet and do their job where nothing interrupts the once, because if it's lost, it's really lost, and so forth. There's a thousand things like that, and the people that I want and need to have back, I mean, primarily, it's really, it, it, it's Elaine, it's Buck Henry, it's, it's the person that's there with you that you can question things with. It's the DP who knows what you mean even when your words are dumb. Who knows what's happening? What is this event? What is happening? And how can we help it? That, and then it's very, and then new people come into that all the time. Mm -hmm. New exciting people. I mean, John Bloom who edited the last three things I did. It's very scary. I mean, I shoot and I know how I'm going to cut it. That's the point. And then I'm used to telling the editor in the dailies, you know, this is obviously the master, but what I really want to do is here, and then I want to pick it up there, and I'm not interested in this part of the shot. I did it for here, and then by and large, they put it together, and it's sort of what you meant, but you have to say, no, what I really meant, and so forth. Well, John Bloom would know all that. And he started out so interesting because he said, no, I don't want to be on the set. I don't want to see what you're doing. And I don't want to see the script. No editor, I mean, they're always on the set and telling me and talking and reading and so on. But he said, no, no, no. I, w I want to see it the first time in dailies and see what happens to me and see what I get and what I don't get. Well, he knows what I meant. I never have to tell him how I intended the shots to go together. He just does it. He just knows. So that when I see an assembled scene, I'm miles ahead. Seeing your first assembly is, is a horrible experience, usually. Because not only is it the worst movie you've ever seen, <laughs> but everything that you hoped would be there is not. And all it is is that you haven't really edited it yet. You haven't said, no, what I meant is, oh, let me show you, and so forth. Well, not with John Bloom. And that's amazing. And this is sort of a thing like that that happens with, with the various people you make movies with that is the obverse of Mamet's great joke, and that is what makes it the, the highest calling. Wit is absolutely harrowing to watch. Was it difficult to make? It was difficult for Emma for an interesting reason. It, she said that, that it, 
her body, she was exhausted. Yeah. That, that pain is tension. And that at the end of the days, done shooting this stuff, that she was like wiped out. And that she afterwards had, had to sort of rebuild her body, you know, with physical therapy and stuff. Mm -hmm. And none of us had thought of it. She hadn't thought of it. Yeah. It wasn't difficult for the rest of us because it was Emma going through it, not us. She, she's amazing in it. And so was Kathleen Chalfont on stage. Did you ever consider using her? Absolutely. I thought she was great, too. Movies. Um, I, I don't want to keep dividing everything into us and the studio because it hasn't been like that for a long time in a lot of places. Uh, but what I was going to say was the studio insists on names, and but for good reason. I mean, that's just the breaks. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's usually what happens. I also, aside from that, I want the same thing to happen to the actor that happens to me, to be hit by the material for the first time. I mean, people have done great performances in movies of the plays they've done. Well, Brando is the great example, but I saw the play, and even in the movie, he wasn't like in the play, mm -hmm. because there's something about that that you can't do again. Right. So that, that it's fair. I mean, if you do the play, give up on the movie. Mm -hmm. Tell Julie Andrews, Audrey Hepburn, they still are trying to work that one out. But, but um, anyway, the... Um, Don't the, get me the, started. The, <laughs> the, uh, the character of Vivian, played by Emma, um, talks about paradoxes in this clip. And I think the one that really struck me the most was the paradox of her pride of taking on this extremely aggressive and, and painful program, and then her realizing later what the truth of that line and her favorite poet John Donne's was, is death be not proud. And it, I found that very moving. What were the themes that pulled you into this project? I think that was one of them. Um, I think that the, the position of the people taking care of someone in very ill and in great pain, um, that it's not possible to learn enough about it and that a very strange and interesting thing happened to me. There's a great, sort of generally acknowledged to be the best doctor, the one who knows the most about breast cancer and if you, if you can get to him when someone has got a bad breast cancer that's gone too far. He's amazing. And he helped a friend of ours, and then he helped another friend of ours. We began to recommend people to him. And my wife always calls them first because she gets their attention. Um, and, and, she, and she, it's a whole other subject about it, the research she does when anybody, any of us is sick. Um, sort of the research that she does in her work. And in the course of it, she unearthed this guy. And, and uh, the point I'm laboring toward is that finally she said, 
we had yet another sick friend. And she said, call him yourself. He'll talk to you. Mm -hmm. So I did. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you called because uh, I, wit, I use wit to teach. And he said, thank you. Thank you for doing it the way it is. And I, I use it to show interns and residents you know, what they have to learn about the humanity involved. That was a great compliment. That is. That's wonderful. And I never thought that we had been entirely fair, you know, to the doctors because it's tough. It's really tough. And yet, after making it, I was in... No, before, I took something from life. I was with a friend who was, in fact, dying of cancer, and the great doctor finally came to check on him. I mean, she was supposedly his doctor anyway. And it was late in the, sort of like seven or eight at night in the evening, and she actually came in an evening dress mm -hmm. and addressed us all for a few minutes like a sort of great star, and then she left. And it was, every, everybody was stunned, you know, because it was very late and he was very sick. Um, and I took that, you know, the doctor coming when she's dying, coming in black tie, mm -hmm. you know. And, and yet he was very nice. He left some big deal fundraiser yes. or family thing or something to come and look after her. It is complicated, yeah. and we tend to turn them into enemies when they're not. Uh, but there isn't time to talk about the woman who wrote Wit, who was so utterly remarkable. Margaret uh, Edson. Margaret, yeah. yes. And she, everybody always asked her, so what are you going to write next? She said, nothing. She said, I just wanted to write this one thing. She teaches her kindergarten class. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Have you ever talked to her? No, I don't know her. Well, she's astonishing. And she, like, I wrote her, you know, saying thank you for your piece and we'd love you to come and visit us. She said, oh, I can't possibly visit you because of my class. And she sent us a picture of her class and she identified them all by oh, name. <laughs> and it's nice to see. I mean, she was great. Now, when you were transcribing it from the stage to the screen, you, and which you did with Emma Thompson, you co-wrote the screenplay, right? Yeah. Um, how did you how did you reimagine it? Because you you made some, not only expanded it, opened it up a little bit, but you did make some shifts in the plot as well. I love the process of turning a play into a movie because they're so different. And there's such surprising gifts in the translation, transition. Take, for instance, laughs. Anything really good has a lot of laughs in it. I don't care if it's Hamlet or Lear or Wit, but there are laughs. That's something that comes with a good play. And what we're all so used to, actors included, if it's if a really good play and it's doing very well and it's successful and it's hard to get into, there's generally a laugh about every 20 seconds. 
So that what the actors are really doing is they're doing 20 seconds, they get to the joke, they wait. And there's another 20 seconds. And then there's another 20 seconds. And if you're working on the play, if you've directed it, you think, yeah, let's cut that little laugh. We don't need that line because then you go from a big laugh to a big laugh. Mm -hmm. And you're so happy you're getting all your laughs. But you sort of lose track of the fact that things do happen in long arcs and long curves. And it's not over yet, and it's not over yet, and it's not over yet. And finally she says, well, in that case, I'm going to leave you, and then it's over. In a movie, you can just go right there. You don't have to keep stopping. Right. It makes an enormous difference. It's a different event from one that is constantly broken into tiny pieces with laughs. In the same way, to look at us in profile is entirely different from looking someone in the eye. And especially when that person is addressing you, either it's someone way down there on the stage talking to everyone, or it's a person in the room with you talking to you. And little by little, these things become something completely different. That's, I like that part. Mm -hmm. Angels in America is a staggering achievement. And uh, when you were making it, the, um, the events of 9-11 occurred. And I was wondering if there was a way in which you incorporated the, the sorrow and the horror of that into Kushner's apocalyptic vision of America of the 80s. Did, or is it just something that we read into as we watch it? These things sort themselves out. You don't, we actually had the World Trade Center in it. I, don't know I know you, you noticed. did, yes. Yeah. We had to put it in, of course. Um, but just in terms of period, it w would have been there. And then by the time we were shooting from Brooklyn, it wasn't there. So nowadays, you can do anything you want in movies. So we put it in. And so partly because of that and partly because it was what it was, of course, we thought about it a lot. There's something about your time that enters a movie, and it's, it's one of the things that makes a movie what it is, whatever time it was made in. The Graduate, it was so strange, because The Graduate, in our minds, certainly in my mind and in Buck's mind, was about materialism. It was about a, a young man who was drowning in things. He was surrounded by things and drowning in things and turned into a thing by things mm -hmm. and who managed to save himself through passion. First through sex and then finally through passion and madness and was saved somewhat. And it, we were astounded. First of all, we were astounded at the pre first preview because the people stood up and screamed for the last five minutes like at a prize fight. But that was because it had, had run afoul of a kind of journalistic hook that was just coming into vogue called the Generation Gap. And apparently, and I didn't know about it, I don't read Life magazine, <laughs> that didn't read Life magazine, that, that there was this important thing that everybody was writing about, the generation gap. 
And so it became a movie about the younger generation fighting and hating their parents. That never occurred to us. It never occurred to the guy who wrote the novel, Charles Webb, and so forth. But the time, especially with a, a hit, the time sort of enters something and decides what it's going to be mm -hmm. and turns it into something. Nobody ever plans such things. And you wouldn't be a very good filmmaker if you made a movie to accommodate a journalistic hook. Right. So in, in the same way, the World Trade Center and, and what was happening is happening to us, whatever you, we will eventually call it, it suffuses these things, especially when you have a great writer, when you have Kushner, who is writing not only for the moment in which he's writing, but for afterwards. Not that he's writing for posterity, but once he's written it, it becomes something else that we all fill in with ourselves mm -hmm. and with what's happening now and what has happened and so forth. That I don't think you need to bring things like World Trade Center and put them in the movie. They are there. Right. They come as you, as you move along. And, and that's probably true, too, of some of the political passages in, in the film when uh, Pacino is having dinner in the Oak Room uh, and he talks about, as Roy Cohen, and he talks about wanting to cast a long, dark shadow over his enemies. This is after they've been talking about the, you know, sort of their access to political power yes. and how chilling it is. But that, again, is sort of, oh my God, that's the day before yesterday or something. Exactly. But you know, I mean, if, there was a funny side effect of Angels in America, and the, 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 last, the last occurrence of it was just a couple of weeks ago, and somebody sent it to me. <laughs> it was, and there was quite a lot of this in the reception, but this was my favorite. It was a, a guy who writes a TV column for something. Um, and he said, finally, we were going to get to see Angels in America, and I was so excited at last. And I, my wife and I sat down, and, and she loves whatever that TV show is called, Touched by an Angel. <laughs> And we sat there, and in Al Pacino's very first scene, he played a man who really was not very nice. And his language was shocking. <laughs> and, I, and there are a lot of people who are outraged that they're expecting angels, and it's so... They love <laughs> angels. <is> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> And then they're hit with all this stuff. Yeah. But the idea of watching Roy Cohn <laughs> and saying he's really not very nice, is at least he's missing a sense of history. <laughs> you know, and I, it's very interesting to make something, it's this. It's the, it's the thing we never remember. And now we're paying for the fact that last night and to this morning, we all paid for the fact that we don't remember it. There's nothing that everybody knows. We all assume, well, everybody knows A, B, C. No, no. Everybody doesn't know it. Some of it know this, and some of them know that. And people know different things. Mm -hmm. 
And, and when you make movies, especially movies that concern, like you do if you work with Krishna, that concern our time and our country and our hearts, and it's, it's amazing how utterly some people understand it and say, well, yes, that's the world. And other people say, what? How could you, what is this? I went to England and I was doing it. Oh, we were shooting over there. We were shooting, whatchamacallit, Closer. Um, people call it Closer. They think it's about a real estate <laughs> person. Um, or they're looking for closure. That's it. Oh, well, they have to have closure. <laughs> closure is something you must have. Yes. Um, but anyway, we were in England, and I, I, somebody had reviewed, they reviewed it, and they didn't like it very much over there, because they, they don't like things that we've liked over here. And there was some critic, and whose review of Angels began with the sentence, God, I hated it. And I thought, poor bastard, it's six and a half hours long. <laughs> you know, that must have been really painful. Why didn't he stop? <laughs> but he saw it all the way through. Well, he was wrong, wrong, wrong. But uh, Different opinions. You swept the Golden Globes. You won an unheard of 11 Emmys for it. And in your acceptance speech, you, uh, I think, very wonderfully, beyond correctly, talked about the fact that we have to keep AIDS in the forefront of our minds because it is still obviously raging in the third world and elsewhere. Uh, is this a subject that's particularly close to you? Well, yes, I lost beloved friends to it, as many of us did in the theater, of course. Um, it, it became closer to me through Kushner because he dealt with it as a great writer deals with something so massive that it can't really, that you wouldn't think of it as part of literature. But he is maybe our great writer, but, but, but certainly as great as there has been in the American theater. And somehow he transformed it it's funny to think that Ibsen was writing about uh, what's this? Uh, what's that venereal disease that syphilis? Sorry. Um, yeah, that, that ghosts was entirely about syphilis, and so by the way was uh, La Ronde. Bet you didn't know that. That it was the fantasy of, of something being passed on mm -hmm. from person to person to person to person. That it was thinking about syphilis that caused him to write that rather odd play. Um, but that when a great writer deals with such a thing, the one thing we never think of it as being which it is is useful. I think the reason I love Kushner most, I love him for about a million reasons, but the, the most, the biggest reason is, is he's so useful. 
that he says things, writes things, tells us things that we can actually take home and use. I love it when writers do that. A friend of mine told me that Maya Angelou said to her, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. And it stunned me. It was the most useful thing anybody ever said to me because I realized in hearing that sentence that when somebody's going to go for you, they always fire a warning shot across your bow. And we always ignore it. We always say, oh, well, they were under a lot of strain, and it was a tough day, and I know he, she really likes me. It, it wasn't what it sounded like. Yes, it was. <laughs> Pay attention, because they're going to come back and kill you the next time. <laughs> And for a writer to say that, say something so useful that you can actually live differently because of it, mm. that's, and that's what Kushner does. That's why I, I feel like we were all somewhat changed by working on angels. Yes. He had a line, history is about to crack open, is something that we can take every day. With. Especially some days. Right. Um, uh, closer brings you back to familiar cruel territory that you covered in Carnal Knowledge and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Have you, have you wondered why you're attracted to stories of domestic emotional uh, discord? I think I told you why. Yeah, you did. I didn't, you know, until I said it, I didn't realize. Oh, I see, that's why I do it. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I think that, uh, what was it that I was thinking about closer? Yes. I read a thing in college uh, by D.H. Lawrence. It's a small book called Studies in Classic American Literature. And I love it when writers write about other writers because you realize, well, they know what they're talking about and they're very insightful. And he said this, thing about Poe that I've never forgotten, which was that the reason that there's so much blood and coming back from the dead and all these ghoulish things in Poe is that it is the ultimate romantic fantasy. It's the fantasy of being even closer, being so close that you go through the skin and that you can't get through somebody else's skin without blood and gore and eventually death. But that to want to be so close to someone in certain imaginations like Poe's and ours when we respond to Poe, it has to do with being closer yet, even closer, closer still. And we all know that feeling that comes with certain kinds of passion, if not love, but also with love. And um, I don't think of Closer as cruel, about cruelty. I think of it as, it's really an essay about that question that by a certain age you learn never to answer. I just want to know, I won't be mad, but I just want to know. 
<laughs> I promise I won't be mad, but tell me, I really need to know. Well, everybody over the age of 14 knows that you must lie your head off in that, in that moment. And it's like what somebody I know said, that the importance in love of lying is never, uh, I mean, never propounded. Nobody ever says, it's very important if you really love somebody to remember to lie to them. But of course, that's right. I mean, many things that are true don't turn, can't be a Sunday sermon. Right. And I, I think closer is about wanting to get closer than can be safe and needing to know things that you should leave alone and about guys need to kill each other, which confuses everything. Mm -hmm. And women know all about it, but guys get confused and, and they think it's, they're working hard and they think it's business. And no, it's, it's some sort of atavistic need to really kill the other guy. And that's, the, that's as strong as lust. Mm -hmm. Those two strong things, and I think that everything that happens in Closer is about those things. And I was so happy and surprised, you know, that there's this awful thing that you have to do in movies called the focus group. It's really a terrible thing. It's like reading your slam book in high school. <laughs> Listen to people talking about the movie, and I always go out for that part. You say, you know. Just give me the score later. You can tell me what they said in the focus group. I don't want to hear it. But this time I listened, and they were, surprisingly, they were talking about this thing that's buried deep in the movie, relatively deep, namely that the guys are out to kill each other, mm -hmm. to get the girl. Right. When does it open? December 3rd. Right. I look forward to seeing it. Good. <laughs> um, Elaine May once said that... Um, one could make out of your quotes and interviews a book of essays, and she's right because you are brilliant and magnificent, and we're so happy you were here tonight. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to The Close Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.